I'm Ben Saunders, and welcome to the New Frontiers podcast. In today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome the gloriously talented and deep-thinking Rain Wilson. Best known for his iconic portrayal of Dwight Schrute in The Office, a role that earned him three Emmy nominations, Rain's journey has extended far beyond the screen. He has gone on to co-found Climate Basecamp, a platform to educate people on climate change. And then there's his book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Now, obviously, as an Englishman, I don't often talk about spirituality. So this episode takes me into rarely charted territory. We also discuss his journey from acting to activism and the power of storytelling in inspiring change. It was a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. We first met a few years ago, I think it's 2021, up in Edinburgh. I, at that point, I had not seen The Office. I'd never seen, I mean, I'd seen, the, I'd seen the British one with Ricky Gervais or like 12 episodes of it. So I, I didn't at the time fully appreciate who you were, which is someone who has brought joy to the lives of many millions of people so thank you for for, for joining me here um how dare you, you? how dare yeah. you in typical <laughs> british fashion there's 11 now, episodes <laughs> of a british show from 20 years ago i'm gonna watch those over and over again i'm not gonna watch the 200 episodes of the far superior american i want to say that uh in all seriousness i thank you the British are so good at storytelling and have been since pre-Shakespeare. And uh, the Americans just continue to borrow your great storytelling ideas and <laughs> repurpose and repackage them and try and profit off them <laughs> as much as humanly possible. But um, the uh, the British office was, uh, I am so grateful for it. It's brilliant. And it provided me with a long, rich career that has led me to having this conversation with you. So. Well, God there we go. On, on behalf on behalf of a nation, I will I will accept that. <laughs> now, you, you also strike me as someone who who is unafraid to dig into um, some pretty weighty, profound, deeply meaningful subjects that that affect all of us and that divide lots of us, like spirituality. Um, and I, I I have your. I have your book, Solbu. There we go. Um, it, it is. It is thumbed. It is not yet well thumbed, but it, it deserves to be because it's 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 fantastic. Um, there's a lots of uh, food for deep thought in there. Um, so, words like spirituality and what you call the the granddaddy of all pandemics, uh, climate change. So, from from a from an outsider's perspective, I guess you've 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 appeared to have had a pretty successful career uh, as an actor, a character that's become iconic. And I guess first question is, how has that journey from playing Dwight Schrute in The Office to, to becoming a storyteller, um, some might say an activist in climate change, how's that, how's that journey been? Well, that's the granddaddy of all questions, isn't it? Um, you're going right to the, to the heart of the matter. Um, it's been an incredible uh, journey, and I'm very grateful for it. I know that that sounds immediately like a cliche, but I will say that um, when I look back on my life, it's funny. I, I heard someone talking about this and I can't remember who. So, uh, But they were saying like, when you're young and your life is all chaotic and confusing, everything just seems random. Like you're in the middle of like a pachinko game and your life is just bouncing around in your choices. Um but then when you're older and you look back, you're like, oh, wow, everything really seemed to happen for a reason, whether it mm. did or not, whether that's just the mm. way our brains process our, our memories and our life stories. But for me, you know, my life was all about being an actor. So I went to acting school. I fell in love with the theater. I just wanted to play characters. I wanted to get paid to be an actor. I did like 10 years of theater before I did any TV and film. Um, I was on the the poverty. I never made over $20,000 a year as an actor for the first 10 years of my career. Um, and what I'm so grateful for is realizing that my life and is much larger than I initially thought. Like hmm. 
in my, in my 20s and early 30s, I thought of myself as a character actor and I would be in a regional theater somewhere or I'd do little roles on television playing weird characters. And that was it. That was my, I, I had in my own head, in my own consciousness, painted my life as something very small. And the success of The Office and other movies and projects that I did over the years, um, all of a sudden people were interested in what I had to say. And I found myself having the ability to tell stories on a much larger level, both in founding, you know, YouTube channels like Soul Pancake and writing books like this one and a few others. Um, and I realized that my my life is much larger than I initially thought. And I had greatly mm -hmm. limited myself. And that and that's really one of the messages I try and carry to young people when I'm speaking at like college campuses and stuff like that, that we unnecessarily sometimes make our lives much smaller than they need to be. And I guess mm -hmm. I would throw that back to you, Ben. How does that, how has your life expanded, your vision of your capacity expanded uh, over the decades then when you were kind of young, like hiker, adventurer, yeah. <laughs> dude in his 20s, to now well, kind of I mean, trying to have a, a larger mouthpiece and make a greater impact? Yeah, well, I'm still, I think I'm still trying to work it out. I mean, the, the, the honest answer is, is profoundly, I, 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 you know, I had this, this crazy dream as a teenager, partly, I mean, you, you could, you could boil the motivation for my entire polar career down to, to two words, you know, d dad issues. I, I, I grew up without <laughs> knowing mine. So, so I was looking, looking for male role models. I was, I was looking for a a template for what it meant to to be a man because there was a there was a blank space where I was looking for one and I I, I latched on to what I now look back on as, as as almost laughably overblown caricatures of of you know macho individual heroic accomplishments might uh, so my my heroes as a boy were all um, all men often with beards obviously but, um, always wearing big boots usually on a mountain or crossing a polar ice cap or sailing around the world or going into space. So, and I wanted how did, to... How did, you, how did you find these men as your role models? Were you <laughs> reading like adventure yeah. magazines or what? I mean, yeah, that, that, the, 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 those, the shelves behind me, I mean, the, there's another shelf up about that, like most of those are adventure. Um, I think as a, as a boy, like National Geographic, which is weird. We didn't even subscribe to it as a family. Like I remember sort of finding a copy somewhere one day as a kid. I have just like this, 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 this weird memory of the yellow kind of border around the outside of this magazine. But how did, how um, did male role model come to equal uh, adventurer versus rock star or yeah. military man i, I think but also i i, I uh, yeah swashbuckling you know kind of yeah, tycoon uh well no, that's the plan now but no, I, um i think it was it was also that i was lucky enough you know that there were bits of my childhood that were that were missing big things but there were bits of it that were rich with 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 opportunity and experience that that in a way that most kids don't have in, in, in that most of my childhood was was in like rural southwest UK not a million miles from where I live now so as a young boy I've got a brother he's two years younger than me like we were just outdoors the whole time and we were able to be because we lived in a little house in the in on the edge of this tiny village in the middle of nowhere and, and if we weren't at school which I didn't really respond that well to um you know, it's. I suspect I have some flavor of some sort of attention deficit disorder. I I didn't respond well to sitting in a classroom. You know, kind of with my mouth shut, being told to remember things. I I, I learned by doing and love being outside. And I was lucky in that I spent an awful lot of time as a boy in in nature. And uh, and I joined the the scouts, you know, Boy Scouts, and, and loved hiking and climbing and all that stuff. I, I was not. I certainly wasn't athletic at school. Uh, and partly because we moved around a bit as a family, different schools. So I was, I was invariably the last to be picked for for the football team or the year for whatever. So, but these sort of solo, you know, hiking, climbing, being being outdoors, um, solitude, time for introspection. That that that's that's where I got my kicks as a as a boy and as a teenager. Nice. All right. It's funny that you say about. Sorry, I don't mean to hijack the conversation. But I do, <laughs> do want to say something on this because I was. For myself, 
Mm. My dad was kind of a failed artist. Like he always Mm. wanted to be an artist. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to be a painter, but he would never go sell his stuff. He just had kind of low self-esteem. He didn't like rejection. So he just kind of did it for himself and never tried to make a career of it. So when I tried to make a career as an actor, I I saw my dad as a template. So it was kind of male role model in reverse of like, don't be Mm. that. Don't Mm. be whatever Mm. my dad is doing. Don't do that. Do the opposite. So Mm. it was move to New York, be an actor, hustle, climb the ladder, network, you know, try and sell myself, you know, which sucks and it's awful work and I hated it, but I also knew what the alternative was, which was to sit in Mm. suburban Seattle and paint in your garage Mm. and not have any success. But I was also talking to Mm. this, I was sitting at dinner with this entrepreneur and I was asking him about becoming an entrepreneur and he said he did it in response to his father because his father was always a failed businessman and was always broke and could never make his businesses work. So he's in this very high-end consulting, multi-billion dollar business. In response to his father, who was a terrible businessman who could never figure out how to make businesses profitable, and he's like, I'm going to figure out how to make businesses profitable. That's going to be my, that was his drive. So Mm. I wonder how many I mean, we're just speaking to the men in the in the room, men in the podcast, but I wonder how many people's lives are just set on a course because of fathers or absence of fathers. It's fascinating. And I, 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 I um, we're going totally off piece here, but this is, we'll, we'll run with this because it, this is a topic close to my heart. Um, I did a, um, this is, uh, well, for, for me, the, the sort of zenith of anything approaching fame, but I, I did an interview with um, BBC Radio 4. They have a show that's been running for decades uh, called Desert Island Discs. I don't know if you come across sure. this. Sure, um, yeah, but that's it's very well known, very famous. And one, it's, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's sort of one-to-one interview with a, with, a, with a presenter. I did it with an extraordinary woman called Kirsty Young. And they obviously do a ton of research on the on the guests. I hadn't done enough research on her. I did not know that when she was a young girl, her dad got up one morning after breakfast, left the house, disappeared. And she credited much of her career with, with wanting to become sufficiently famous that if he was still alive, he would know where to find oh her. And he, wow. he would, and he would know, he would know that she was okay. So she, it was fascinating. So she, she, as soon as I mentioned that I, I, well, as soon as she realized that I'd grown up without knowing my dad, this became central theme of the interview. Anyway, someone emailed the program weeks after it came out, the producer forwarded it to me saying, we're surprised you didn't talk about us presidents. And I think it's 11 or 12 us presidents either had no contact or very limited contact with their with their fathers so it's a sort of perennial recurring theme and and it seems to send and again we are talking about men here this this wasn't the intention for the theme but it's interesting in in one of two directions like it either provides this extraordinary impetus you know in 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 some senses maybe the the mother of all chips on on shoulders or it's you know I think the majority of men who, that are incarcerated, certainly in the UK, I'm sure in the US as well, you know, probably don't have a dad or didn't have a dad that was around. And I think, you know, I'm 47 now. I think I think you're maybe like 10 years older. Than I am. I'm sure. 10 years older. I think when I was, I think when I was 27, I'd assumed that by this age, I'd you know, I'd have a degree of wisdom, I'd lived experience, and and I'd be more certain about a few things. And I, I'm not sure that's the case. I think I'm just more and more uh, perplexed at at the way the world seems to be you know what, what, what not the world humans human beings and i think at the end of your book you you talk about it's fundamentally boiling the whole concept down you're trying to talk about spirituality uh, wonderfully wikipedia says that there is no sort of centrally uh, agreed definition for spirituality so which makes it even even more difficult topic to sort of dig into and try and define. Um, but um, you talk about boiling it down to unity. And um, and I think for me now, age, age 47, like part of me, it's just it's like, how come we humans haven't figured this out yet? How come we're still bickering about the same, the same old stuff? So I don't know if we can, we can, you know, solve world peace in, in the next, <laughs> next 15 minutes. But um, yeah, so I, I find myself rather than, 
I think I'd imagine naively years ago that, that by this stage I'd be, I don't know that, that, that my, my, some of my beliefs would have sort of settled and, and solidified. I'd be more, I mean, I'm definitely more sure of myself. Uh, I, I, I know myself better than ever, and I hope that trajectory will keep going. But do I understand the world? It, it confuses me on a, on a near hourly basis. You bring up a bunch of really interesting questions and points. First of all, let's get to spirituality because I do have this book, Soul mm. Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. And and that's a tricky word. And you had said early on, like it's potentially divisive because for a lot of people, spirituality means church. And it's just synonymous mm. with an organized religion that's been around for hundreds mm. or thousands of years and um, and for other people, it has a very kind of woo-woo kind of when you say spirituality, what you really mean is like incense and crystals and kind of, you know, uh, chakras and, and, and stuff like that. And for me, you know, I sum it up by saying, uh, by quoting the famous priest and philosopher Teilhard de Chardin, who says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So this is what I know to be true, that we are all spiritual beings having a human experience, whatever that means. And this can incorporate, if you're a Christian or Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist or Baha'i, um, but we have a spiritual side, a soul, whatever you want to call it. We get 80, 90, 100 years in our meat suits, and then we continue our journey. And the development of that spiritual side of ourselves, that part of ourselves, our our heart and soul, our um, our spiritual qualities of compassion, of love, of kindness, of of unity, of honesty, of humility, and developing those attributes is part of our spiritual journey. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's what I would say spirituality is: is a focus on the soul and the journey of the soul, plain and simple. Now I know. Mm-hmm. If you're a hardcore atheist and materialist, that's going to be nonsense. And you're going to say, we're just brains that evolved consciousness a little bit above monkeys. And when our consciousness snuffs out like a candle, that's it. That's the end of the journey. And that's fine. You can have that uh, as well. But one thing I think we can all agree on is that these qualities, these kind of higher human qualities of centered around loving kindness and compassion and service to others and love is what humanity needs right now. You don't have to have a spiritual belief system to understand that there is a universal, fundamental, foundational kind of reservoir of those qualities that we need to tap into. And like you just said, like I cannot believe that in 2023, there's multiple wars all across the planet. I mean, we've got Gaza, we've got Ukraine, we've also got Sudan and Yemen and mm. probably a bunch of Congo and a bunch of other places we don't really know about. We're still trying to solve things by shooting and blowing up each other. Have How have mm. we not learned? How have we not learned that this is not sustainable and it's not going to work and it's not going to end well? Mm. Mm-hmm. I... Um... I had now. I, I'm, I'm an Englishman, so, so it's doubly kind of toe curling for me to talk about soul or, or having a soul, not the music um, or, or, or spirituality. But I, 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 I had, I've had what you might call a spiritual experience that, that certainly um, profoundly shifted my my worldview. My my. Ben, um, we're going to get you talking about feelings. <laughs> You're going to share your heart. Okay. Well, You're going to share about God. <laughs> You're going to share about transcendence. You're going to be vulnerable. You're going to go against every British impulse in your DNA. I, well, as as you know, I'm an explorer at heart. I, I'm you know I'm I'm up for that. But um, no, I, so so and this and the irony here is that the the the, the roots of my polar career were, as I've said, were were in were in ego. It was it was in this mm. this naive mistaken belief that um, happiness peace of mind contentment whatever you call it lay entirely in external validation you know and and i and i i wanted to emulate my heroes because they were heroes they were celebrated 
for what they had achieved. So my 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 kind of in my head, the equation was okay. Right, I have to do something difficult, and if it's hard enough and impressive enough, and enough people say positive complimentary things about what I've done, then I'll be happy. And I realized ultimately that that's that's not how it works. But that's my career. Polo career had its had its roots in just in wanting to show off. Um, and and that's what I did. And along the way, you know, sewed on these kind of metaphorical scout badges, world record, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but one of the really formative experiences was first arriving in Antarctica, 2013. In fact, this was uh, just over 10 years ago. So October 2013, my first first time in Antarctica. And, and this was for a really big, really silly camping trip, um, 1800 miles on foot down there. The one of the, the the unique things about Antarctica, and one of the reasons I fell in love with this place, is that nobody owns it. It's it's a vast continent. Antarctica is the size of China and India put together, so it's a huge place. We we know now that that, that it also has trillions of dollars of natural you know, resources that could be dug up and mined and drilled and exploited and sold and and you know burnt or consumed somehow. And we've we sort of decided collectively as humans back in the 1950s at the height of the Cold War to to actually set this place aside as the largest nature reserve on the planet, certainly the largest terrestrial nature reserve. So Antarctica is it's governed by a treaty, an international treaty, which, which means that there are no claims of sovereignty. Nobody owns this place. Uh, and therefore, if you arrive there one day, there's no border control. No, no one checks your passport mm. because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you came from, like what, what what flag was flying over the bit of the planet that you happened to be born. Just it's the sort of one place on Earth. I mean, maybe this is true of bits of the oceans as well, but um, but Antarctica is certainly the only constant where it doesn't matter where you came mm. from. It doesn't matter at all. And the only thing that matters when you arrive there, and it's a place that isn't really that conducive to, to human existence, um, and whether you arrive on an icebreaker or by an aircraft, there will be other people there other human beings and they will have come from all sorts of other places speaking different languages very quickly you have to trust them because they're, they're all there because they're very good at do, doing different jobs they might be a pilot or a mechanic or, or a satellite communications person or a medic or a chef or whatever but you have to trust them and it, to me antarctica is this and this is part of the space that i, I don't think is understood at all it's, it's a it's a uniquely antarctic story that very few people know it's to me this this utopian outlying example of of genuine unity in a sense now geopolitically there's there's still a lot of a lot of argument going on about antarctica and and, and how it's governed and managed and could we could we exploit bits of it but but from a, a sort of experiential human sense you know arriving there and very quickly having to sort of get on with with other human beings um it, magical experience um, and not not one i've had anywhere else on the planet. Well, was there um, any kind that, of other transcendent specific experience or was it just kind of a sinking realization of like, wait, this is a whole different way of humans doing things? Yeah, I th- and I'm not even sure if I immediately realized that. I think that's something that that that, that became clearer on a bit of reflection mm. and with a bit of, bit of sort of hindsight. Mm. Um, but um, it, to me, that's one of the really special things is, is this. And, and also it is, it's the only continent that's never seen a war. Um, wow. it, it, it is. It appears pristine. It's it's remarkably well uh, managed by by humans. I said managed, looked after. What the right term is? We don't really manage it. We just we just do stuff down there. But um, but it, it's it's you know it's well looked after compared to everywhere else. Now I I found out since that expedition that um, a, a big part of area the area that I walked across early in that trip uh, called the Ross Ice Shelf, which is the same size as California. Um, there was a, a team of New Zealand scientists did a study there, I think 2021, um, 19 sites, I may get maybe getting this wrong, snow samples in this area of ice shelf the size of California. Every single snow sample contained microplastics. So it, it, it looks pristine, feels pristine when you're down there. I thought the snow that I was digging up at the end of each day to melt on my stove to, to make drinking water was, was the purest water on earth. Turns out microplastics can be carried in the wind like 4,000 miles. I, I had no idea. So, uh, but it, it's a, it's a magical place. Uh, and it's, it's also a place um, that is, and again, there's an irony here because I think I first uh, aspired to being the, the conqueror, the explorer, the sort of brave, you know, 
it's a deeply humbling place in, in mm. so many so many ways um and not least just the sheer scale it's, was there it's was there a, a beauty and majesty uh sorry for the cliches that you witnessed there that you didn't think you would uh because i can imagine you being just a thousand miles away from any other living human being and it could be pretty humbling and overwhelming did you did you see is there like the the south mm. pole equivalent of the northern lights is there the southern lights down there or gosh um, in some ways in some ways given that this was a nearly four month silent retreat in 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 this you know unspoiled blank white nothingness with no email no news no social media no no people no gossip no nothing um 10 12 hours a day to meditate i think beforehand i was i was hoping naively that i might have time to you know access some enlightened level of of you know consciousness or, or reflection or inspiration i the the sad truth is that you you're actually pretty busy just just staying alive down mm. there and, and trying to cover distance and we, so one of the things quite recently that that has has rewired my brain in all sorts of ways i didn't expect was becoming a dad which um for me it was last year so i have a 18 month old son and for me that there was uh there was this internal and immediate switch in my in my my sort of time horizon you know when he's when he's my age it's going to be 2066 what it, what are things going to be like then so so uh, and and i know that you've talked elsewhere about about parenthood um and and what that's meant to you but i don't know can you can you talk about how perhaps that has changed your perspective on on how you see the world our planet our relationship with it yeah you know um parenthood is a paradigm shift um where all of a sudden there's a creature that you've brought into the world that shares your genetic material that you're responsible for um feeding caring but also educating nurturing and not just until they're 18 and they leave for college but for the entirety of their lives and there is i found such a profound shift in how i learned to love something after that happened like frankly i wasn't a very good husband i wasn't uh, as nearly as loving as I could have been or friend. Um, and having my son, Walter, who's now 19, um, taught me how to love because that kind of love that you have for your child is, it, it changes the whole ball game. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, like I said, paradigm shift of the heart. So it taught me a lot about God to be, quite frank, because I, that's a topic I think about a lot. And, you know, this idea that God is like judgmental, like, and if you do bad things and you sin or you, you know, you steal or you masturbate or you have impure thoughts or something like that, that old kind of churchy idea of God that the, I call him in my book, Sky Daddy. If you have the Sky Daddy looking down on you, kind of like judging you or punishing you, like, that's so ridiculous because, like, I think about my son, Walter, and you think about your kid. Like, if they make mistakes or they do something wrong or even they lie or whatever, like, you love them so much and it can, you continue to just love them. And yet, how much more must God, if there is a God, how much more must this God love us than we love our children? Because that's a, that's, it, but it is, it's a, it's a sample. It's a, it's a, it's a little, it's a little taste, you know, of the enormity of the power of love. And then to me, you know, uh, this, I, I try and move this stuff towards universals and you talked about unity and the, the point of the spiritual revolution of the book really has to do with um, how do we as a species mature to such a point? where every child on this planet is like our child, that we cannot exist as a species if innocent children are dying somewhere, whether it's in Gaza or whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Russia, whether it's in Ukraine, uh, or, or kind of for places forgotten by the Western world like Yemen and Sudan, where we cannot stand 
to our compassion is so great that we cannot stand the suffering of children anywhere. And we will do whatever we can to allay that, to arrest that. And that, and that brings us to climate change, which is, you know, like I said, the granddaddy of all the pandemics that are afflicting humanity right now. And, you know, a deep understanding that if we don't bring these heat trapping gases down, if we don't really significantly change our relationship to planet earth, that children are going to be suffering. And it sounds like a hard on the sleeve kind of liberal hippie kumbaya idea, but it's just a fact. You talked about, what was it? 2066 or, or whatever, like there's now, you know, there's, Extreme weather events like hurricanes are gathering within 24 hours, moving from a class one storm to a class five storm. And what's going to be happening in 2066? Is air travel going to be possible? You know, um, how much more radically chaotic and destructive is our relationship with planet Earth going to be for our children and their children and children's children? So um Part of our spiritual journey is a deep journey into a much richer compassion for our fellow human beings that we just don't have right now. We're like a bunch of 14-year-olds, you know, getting high and getting ready to go to rehab. And um, and we really do, as a species, individually and collectively, need to uh, greatly mature. And, and children can teach us that lesson. Mm. Speaking of speaking of being a bunch of fourteen year olds, we, we we talked earlier about I guess about sort of early early ambition and 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 we didn't call it this, but I guess self actualization and, and the the sort of interesting parallel trajectories that that you and I have in in getting to the to the top or close to the top of, of interesting games. And um, I think you I think I heard you say recently, and this is coming back to something you 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 touch on in the book, which is I guess is the the flip side of, of ambition, which is greed. And you talked about um, being in the office, working in the office and, and, and making, I think you said hundreds of thousands, but you wanted millions and it was never enough. And that humans have lived for hundreds of thousands of years and, and never enough has has helped us mm. as a species. Like we, 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 we clearly have this extraordinary capacity for, for, for ingenuity when it comes to, to, you know, fulfilling our own desires. But how do we, how do you think we balance that innate drive, curiosity, hunger, determination without, without, um, the self-destruction you talked about earlier? Yeah. Um, you're a hundred percent right. Listen, what drove us as human beings and brought us to this point is pretty fucking miraculous. You know, it's, but it's based in anxiety and greed. So anxiety, we go outside of our, our caves and we hear a rustling in the bushes. Oh no, that could be a bear. It could eat us. Oh no, we don't have enough you know, deer jerky stashed up in the back of our cave to get us through the winter. I want more. I want, I'm afraid of things and I want more. I'm afraid of things and I want more. We're hardwired to be afraid of things and to want more all the time. And yeah, for me on the office, I was sharing about that in a couple other interviews. It's astonishing when I look back how much I didn't appreciate what I had, um, which was one of the greatest jobs with a wonderful group of people making a nice ton of money and providing for my family and um, getting to play a really unique and wonderful character. It was really the, uh, the, the, the culmination of my acting career and I wanted more. I just wanted more, more money or better movies or better deals or better ads and more accolades. And, and, you know, I did get to do movies and I did get some accolades and I, and I did make some money. And, um, and that's just, that's the human condition. It's never enough. You know, John D. Rockefeller, when asked how much money is enough, he said famously, just a little bit more. And, but the problem is we're at this crux as a species where our anxiety is killing our youth in this mental health crisis. It's driving a greed to possess more, more power, more stuff, both on an individual level. Like we want stuff from Amazon. I just did the other day. I wanted some water bottles and I just 
clicked a button on Amazon and then three water bottles are getting delivered. And, and I'm like, what do I, what do I do? You know, what's the, is it better for me to drive to a mom and pop shop and get the water bottles? But then, you know, I do have an electric car, but is, you know, it's like, what's our relationship to stuff? You know, we're not having that conversation and we are, you talked about Antarctica and the resources underneath those ice caps. And are we going to use Antarctica the same way we've used the rest of the planet and just dig it up like a, like a mine and just suck the resources from it? And then when we have our garbage, like our plastics, and we just dump that garbage back into planet Earth. But this, Ben, is more than a political issue. It's more than a legislative issue. This is why I bring it back to spirituality, because it has to do with the sacredness of our Mother Earth and our planet. It has to do with the the sacredness of the of the connectivity that we build between us, uh, all the races, all the all the all our skin colors, all of our cultures, all of our countries, and uh, building bonds of of love and unity and working together in harmony is not just hippy dippy stuff. We got to do it, or we're going to perish, and our children are going to perish, and our grandchildren are going to perish. So, to me, that's why I I keep bringing bringing it back to kind of a spiritual revolution. We can talk about COP 28 and 29 and the laws we need to pass and, you know. Possibly better that we don't have 28 of them. I'm not sure much has been achieved. So um, I, I, I did want to dig into, you talked about, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to steer kind of too many sort of buzzword landmines here, but you talked about mental health, talked about anxiety, talked about young people. But climate anxiety, uh, that is a term that, that was not around when you or I were mm-hmm. teenagers. Um, it's a term that means something now. And, and clearly, we are facing a, 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 an apparent and colossal systemic challenge that, that many people may well understand. We feel entirely powerless or sort of bewildered, um, you know, facing this thing. What? what or even at a loss to know what they can do or, or where they where they could start to get involved. What's your perspective on that? Do you have any advice for others who who might want to do something here? What might want to, to to try themselves to move the needle somehow, but have no idea where to start? Yeah, what it's a it's a very that? tricky conversation because a lot of t- in a lot of ways the oil companies kind of were kind of like. Hey, reduce your own carbon footprint and stop, you know, don't use plastics and recycle more. You know, those campaigns were sponsored by oil companies because they wanted to make us think like, oh, if I recycle a bunch of bottles, that's going to save us from climate change. That's bullshit. So we have to completely shift our, the way that we use energy, certainly ban coal. We need to stop methane. Uh, and there's lots of different ways to to stop methane from going into the atmosphere. We need to legislate that. There's hard things that we need to do as humanity, um, as humans on the planet. I would say the most important thing that humans can do if they want to get involved in this is A, get educated. Like just, it sucks. And I don't even like reading these articles. You know, I don't like to read, you know, Draw Down by Paul Hawken and these books that give us solutions and science and stuff, but we have to get educated and we just have to demand major change. We've got to stop oil and gas uh, drilling and exploration. That's still happening. We've got to stop coal plants from getting built and demand it of our governments that, that they be vocal about this. And we're doing it for our children and our, and our grandchildren. And, uh, you know, there's more to it than that, but that's that's the place to start. It's it's really it's such a difficult conversation because there really isn't a ton an individual can do. One of the things that I'm doing mm-hmm. with some friends is I'm involved with, with a two sister organizations, Arctic Base Camp and Climate Base Camp, and we speak we seek to speak science to power and speak science to culture. So we're trying to use storytelling devices to get people to think about climate change in new, new and unique ways. 
and and, you, and you, you've done so in, in in some pretty unique ways. I mean, tell tell us about I mean, ice cream or, or icebergs. I mean, either either story. Yeah. So <laughs> we have a new campaign that we've just started called Save the Flavors because people don't realize like the price of coffee, of cocoa, of vanilla, of pistachio is going up by five or ten fold because of climate issues because of of drought of extreme heat of you know a, a reduced growing areas increased kind of pests and funguses um so we had an ice cream truck in new york city and um we're just cutting together the video that we made of that um giving out free ice cream and then educating people about how the, our favorite flavors are going to be lost because of climate change, or they're just going to become so prohibitively expensive, we're not going to afford them. And speaking of icebergs, we at COP26 in uh, Glasgow, we towed an iceberg from Greenland, and we hung it up on a chain outside of the uh, event. So it was slowly melting as the attendees were walking into the conference center. And then we handed out bottles of glacial ice melt water. And is that going to do anything? I don't know, you know, but we are just trying to poke the bee's nest. We're trying to tell stories. We're trying to, you know, get people thinking of climate change on on a, on a much larger level, a more emotional level and, and primal level. And I do think that storytelling, um, like what Adam McKay is doing with Yellow Dot Studios, he'd be a great person to speak to. Um is is a really important part of this because, and I'll just say this one last thing. My my thing is like we need to reach the movable middle. There's a bunch of like lefty green climatey folks that already are trying to do whatever they can. They're already convinced. Stop making content for them. Stop preaching to the choir. Um, and there's a part on the political right that think it's all a liberal conspiracy to just have government overreach, they're never going to change their minds. Just leave them alone. Forget it. Let them, you know, let them suffer. But there is a large part in the middle that they don't know what to do. They don't know exactly what to think. They're, they're reading a lot of disinformation online and from the petroleum companies, from big oil. And that's the target, you know, try and reach that movable middle and bring them over. Mm. It strikes me that, that, that Dwight, has a, an extraordinary um, following across that swathe of the the movable middle of middle America, you might say. Do, do you worry about alienating people? I used to worry about with a, with a, with a I say with a message that isn't comedy, but actually, furthermore, do, do you think that that comedy um, might have a role to play here in communicating something as serious as as, as climate? Yeah, change? we we have tried to incorporate. That and some of the stuff that we've done, we did a big online event that had hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of attendees called Make Earth Cool Again. And we had climate scientists along with actors and stand-up comics and musicians and, um, you know, uh, trying to use comedy to tell stories. But, you know, for me, listen, I talk about two of the least funny, uh, and most alienating topics on planet Earth, spirituality and climate change. Spirituality is going to piss a whole, talking about that is going to piss a whole legion of people off and talking about climate change is going to piss all. I've just ceased caring. You know, I don't care. I, I'm in a very fortunate position. I got some money in the bank. I'm doing fine. I've got work. I'm grateful. I've got my health. But I just don't, I used to really, really care, Ben, what people thought about me. And it used to be mm. uh, such a, a, a horrible cross to bear. I just wanted to be liked and approved of. Um, it drove so much of who I was as an actor and an artist. You know, I hope you like me kind of sad clown kind of stuff. And I'm just at the point, I just don't give a fuck. I really, really don't care. Uh, what people think. I believe that we need a spiritual revolution. I believe that we need to put climate change front and center to all of our conversations. And if that alienates people and pisses them off, so be it. Uh, have there been, um, I was thinking you know, from, from my, my old polar world, there's, there's certainly been some, some, 
some skills or you know hard won experience that's 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 serving me well now i'm mean, just curious to understand if there were if there's anything that you learned or developed in the in the acting world that you've taken forward with the, the work you're doing today well you, you've clearly yeah. shed the you've shed the sort of desire to to be the the sort of you know people pleasing yeah. aspect of it. but i'm i'm intrigued about the what's what's in your toolkit that is working well today well um so acting is really pretty simple. You just pretend to be someone else and they pay you for it. If you're really good at it, you know, they pay you to pretend to be another person. And I think about that every time I'm doing acting. I'm like, this is so cool. They're paying me thousands of dollars to pretend to be this bad guy or this idiot or this weirdo or whatever the character is. So that's about transformation. Um, uh, that's awesome. But I will say that what I have learned from my time in the theater and in TV and film and also producing digital uh, media videos, like at a place like Soul Pancake, which was this company that we ran for a long time that made thousands of uh, short form videos, is it's all about storytelling, you know? And that's what actors do. Mm. That's what writers do. That's what directors do, producers do. And it's the most ancient and kind of most beautiful galvanizing force in human history. Humans love stories. We sat around in caves. We told stories to each other. The shaman told the stories of the hunt and the stories of the ancestors, the stories of the gods told the myths. And we get to do that. And, and in, in your own way, you're telling You've told your story of of exploration and overcoming the elements, and now you're telling new stories. And I'm not saying like, oh, I'm I'm a shaman that's telling stories of gods and myths or something like that. I'm just a weird looking character actor. But um, we uh, stories have a great power to them, and they have uh, the ability mm-hmm. to uh, to change perspective on a big level. So we just got to keep keep trying and keep throwing stories at the wall like spaghetti and, and hope that something sticks. So I've got a couple of bonus round questions. Um, the, the first one is, is, and this is, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, maybe the last 10 years, because my own definition has, has changed quite a bit. But w- what, does, what does success mean to you these days? What does it look like to you now? Is it about changing people's minds, inspiring action, influencing policy, or something else entirely? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, success. Um, you know, I have this double life. So I'm an actor and I do television shows mostly, but some theater, maybe some film. And, uh, and that's great. And then I also do some directing, producing, writing in, in the Hollywood world. And to me, I there's not a whole of course I would love some more big roles and meaty roles and I would love more accolades and, and more money from that path, but it's not, it doesn't hold the same power that it used to. So success for me mm-hmm. is much more about like, how can I harness, how can I leverage my platform as an artist, as a celebrity, as a public figure and try and use that to make the world better. And for me right now, it's focusing on climate activism and on this whole soul boom thing. We're starting a soul boom podcast like everyone else. We're starting a soul boom like social media campaign about getting people thinking about spiritual, big spiritual topics and questions in a fresh, unique, somewhat irreverent way. And that's kind of my way in. So more and more, my success is going to be you know, I hope at the end of the day when I'm dead, which I hope is, you know, at least 20, 30 years from now, um, I will be known as certainly as Dwight Schrute, but um, also as someone that that had an impact and, and helped change lives. So, and I don't mm. think you need a big platform to do that, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. No, indeed. Well, as you've said, like, there are many, many podcasts. If, if, this, one, if this one had to be edited down... To a single minute, is that what, what is the what is the one one thing, one point, one message you, you, you'd like people to take take away and sort of turn yeah. over in their minds? Super easy. Um, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. 
Uh, we have an obligation and responsibility to our planet and to our species to make the world a better place. No matter the size of your platform, we can increase the our view of our own innate capacity and our ability to change hearts and change minds. And we have we all have a role to play, whether it's in your cul-de-sac, church, school, or office, or family, or whether it's on a larger stage. Um, let's work together and uh and and you know strive for for true loving transformation yeah, yeah. gosh in the cat there we go that's it we can literally edit it down in one minute um rain i've had a, a d- delightful human experience uh with you today um thank you for your your insights um into the the power of stories and storytelling um how we can can use stories just to get people thinking a little bit differently around this this thing we're calling climate change um it's been a it's been a real pleasure and, um thank and you I, for I did i did this it. podcast for one reason and one reason only and that is i want an invitation to antarctica when you go down there with your billionaire friends wow. and you've got room in we, the under the hold we need to make a, this happen <laughs> for a weird actor spiritual actor let me just slip me some some bananas it's and sardines a, and take me down to antarctica for christ's sake a, it is a, it's a, that's a deal. I would love to make that happen. And, um, I think we could have an extraordinary, well, not that, not that I've actually ever had a campfire in Antarctica. There are no trees, as it would, but I, I would love to have a round the campfire conversation with you. And I think a few other individuals that would be interested in Will in. So w- yeah, watch this, watch this space. Thank you for joining me on New Frontiers. For more stories and insights, you can visit my website, bensaunders.com. And please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to leave you with a thought from Norwegian explorer Fridjof Nansen, who wrote this in 1928. It is a difficult time you are living in, no doubt, and the world does not give you a bright outlook just now, perhaps. But it is an interesting time. Many important things are happening, and it is full of great problems for you to solve. It is you who have to create the future and make the world a better place to live.